Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. I am Doug Sweeney, your host, here with my co-host, Kristen Padilla. Today in the studio, we have a longtime friend of mine, Kevin J. Van Hooser. Dr. Van Hooser and I have known one another for 30 years, since the time when he was a young teacher of mine in seminary. For the past 20 years, we have been friends and colleagues, mostly on the faculty of Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago. Our offices used to be across the hall from each other. We've gone on dozens of double dates with our wives, Wilma and Sylvie. We've been in each other's homes. We prayed for one another's families. We've brainstormed with one another about our research and writing and common teaching ministries. In short, Kevin is one of my very best friends in all the world, and so it is a great honor for me that he is at Beeson with us today having given the address at my installation service in Hodges Chapel this morning. Kristen will introduce Kevin in a formal way in a moment. For now, I want our listeners to know how dear he is to me and what an important evangelical theologian he is as well. In fact, in my opinion, Kevin is one of the most important evangelical thinkers at work today, and I am eager for all of you to benefit from his wisdom. Before we do, let me offer a brief announcement about next week's William E. Conger Jr. Preaching Lectures. This year's lecturer is Dr. Jared Alcantara, another former colleague of mine who now teaches at Baylor's Truett Seminary. Dr. Alcantara is the Paul W. Powell Professor of Preaching there, and he will preach a sermon here in our chapel next Tuesday entitled Preaching God in the Wild. He will then lecture on Wednesday and Thursday, March 17 and 18 in Hodges Chapel at 11 o'clock in the morning. The first of these two lectures is called The God Who Sees and Calls Us in the Wild, and the second is titled The God Who Saves and Sends Us in the Wild. The lectures are free, they are open to all, their very titles are intriguing, and we hope you'll join us on campus next week to hear them. All right, Kristen, would you please tell us just a little bit more now about today's guest, Dr. Van Hooser. Hello, everyone. As Doug said, we are grateful to have Dr. Kevin Van Hooser with us on today's show. Dr. Van Hooser has been a guest on the show before when Dr. George was host on November 5th, 2018, episode 417. So after today's conversation, we recommend that you go back and listen to that episode. Dr. Van Hooser is Research Professor of Systematic Theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. He is a prolific and award-winning author and serves both the Academy and the Church in a number of ways. And so much more could be said, Kevin, but we are eager to jump into today's conversation and hear from you. So welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Thank you for your hospitality. Well, let's begin uh, with another introduction, this time a more personal one. We would love to hear uh, how you came to faith in Jesus Christ, your faith journey, and what drew you to study and teach theology. Thanks. I came to faith at a young age 
My parents were nominal Christians, but like good nominal Christians, they thought I should go to Sunday school. Hmm. I did. I listened, I paid attention, and I came home with questions. Uh, not, is there a meaning in this text? At least not yet. <laughs> but the regular questions children ask about Bible stories. My mother couldn't answer them, and so she began reading the Bible for herself, eventually came to faith, and then was very concerned that we find a Bible-believing church. So that, that lesson, finding a Bible-believing whatever, has stayed with me. So I remember uh, growing up in a family where my mother would read Bible stories while I was playing with uh, toy castles and catapults, which in retrospect is only fitting because I now think of myself as a knight of faith. <laughs> and as to studying theology, I really wanted to be a New Testament scholar like my mentor and hero, Robert Gundry, who was a family friend and internationally renowned New Testament scholar. So I went to Westmont to study with him. He had actually, when I was a high school student, recommended that I read James Stewart's book, A Man in Christ, which was a study of Pauline theology. And I read that as a 17-year-old, and the scales fell off my eyes. It just There was a different dimension to the world of Bible stories that I discovered. So I went to Westmont to become a New Testament theologian like Bob Gundry, only to discover, when I was a junior, I think, that he said, I don't think you should be a New Testament scholar. And it wasn't because he was trying to get rid of me, at least I don't think he was. But um, strategically, I think he took the measure of me, knew that I liked the big picture, uh, you know, using my imagination to make connections. And he said, evangelical, uh, evangelical church needs systematic theologian. So in the, at first, begrudgingly, I set out then to do what he suggested, study systematic theology. The other fact I should mention, though, is that after college, I did a short-term stint as a missionary. And that experience, trying to evangelize people in secular France, mm -hmm. raised a whole new set of questions for me that who has, since then, always made me very sensitive to the role culture plays, either in speaking or listening uh, to people teach the gospel. Kevin, you're here at Beeson this week primarily because we asked you if you'd be willing to give the address at my installation as the dean of Beeson Divinity School, the new dean here at Beeson. And occasions like this uh, raise all kinds of conversations in our community about theological education, evangelical theological education. You're a former teacher of mine who's thought for many years about the state of evangelical theological education and I know has some uh, opinions about where we ought to be headed. Uh, could you give our listeners just a little feel? It's a tough thing to talk about briefly, but what's your take uh, on the state of evangelical theological education today? And do you have any advice for people like me about where we ought to be moving? Yeah, it's a challenging question. Uh, it's always easy to feel like you're living through a crisis that no one else has faced. And I think there are always been crises. I think we always have to be alert and attentive to what's going on. But it is true today, there do seem to be new challenges. There, there's the demise of denominationalism, the economics of tuition. There's the desire to stay near home in order to do ministry, and maybe a bit of residual anti-intellectualism. And all of these things have put the traditional three or four year MDiv degree on the endangered species list. 
Uh, also, we have new technologies that make information available to us uh, very easily. So seminaries need to show that they're more than temples of the knowledge changers. Uh, we need to return to an older model, I think, where the emphasis is definitely on ministering and forming the whole person, uh, the head and the heart. We're not simply in the business of licensing professionals. I think we need to return to a wisdom-based model that gives people knowledge, yes, but also tells them how to put it into their daily lives so that it makes a difference. I'd also like to see seminary education focused on what it means to read the Bible well and to uh, interpret the Bible practically, that is to live oneself into and out of the world of the text. And I do think all the departments in a seminary are necessary to do that. I don't think biblical studies is necessarily in the one position to do that. I think we need all the disciplines to train our students to read the Bible well, to hear the Word of God for the church yesterday and today. We need all the departments to do that. And I am encouraged by signs of interdisciplinary cooperation, as well as uh, what I think is a new attentiveness to culture. As I mentioned, I was a missionary. I was not necessarily trained to understand culture as a theology major in college. But I think today's seminaries are much more attentive to the role culture plays in ministry. You serve, as we said, at Trinity, which describes itself as a broadly evangelical seminary community united around the gospel of the life, death, resurrection, and return of Christ Jesus. At Beeson, we are very similar. So what is the value of this kind of interdenominational education, especially as we think of the future of the church in societies like ours that are becoming more secular and post-Christian? Yes, I do see us as sister institutions, partners in the gospel, both witnessing to the deep unity of the faith amidst the secondary, but still important differences and diversity. Um, there is a time, I think, to argue about the mode of pr Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper, but there's also a time to recognize that there are more pressing issues because of our surrounding secular culture. Um, I do think that theology has always been occasional. That is, the New Testament documents were written to specific audiences, so we do need to be very attentive to what's happening today, and as I've said, the challenge is to work together to help our students achieve uh, wisdom. So why an interdenominational school? I think people have to learn to cope with people who disagree with them. <laughs> and it's easier to do that when they're in the classroom, either lecturing or sitting next to you. Um, that also is wisdom, knowing when it's important to, you know, draw the line and have a firm conviction and when you can say, I believe strongly about this, but I, I see your point, and it's, it's valuable that you're making it. Um, it's a little bit like, just in general, people need to be more multicultural than we used to be. We're mingling with those who are different. So I think our students need to learn how to live with people who disagree with them about doctrines and other things. Uh, I also think an interdenominational evangelical seminary may be the best place to learn how to be a Catholic evangelical um, without being too contextual. Uh, I do think 
new contexts help us see things in the text that earlier generations may not have seen. But there is a danger in our society, I think, of becoming too identified with those who share your context. And again, it helps to be in an interdenominational school because you will meet people who come from different contexts with different passions. I, I do think places like Trinity and Beeson are important. We've got um, at our school doctoral students from all over the world. And what I'm hoping we're teaching our students is how to be faithful to the gospel in their local contexts in ways that express the Catholicity of the church. And again, I think being in an interdenominational school, especially with people from other cultures, is the best way to learn to do that. One of the things we work hard on here at Beeson, Dr. Van Hooser, is the spiritual formation of our students. We despise the old jokes that substitute the word cemetery for seminary. Uh, we want our students to grow in holiness while they're here. We mm -hmm. want them to become more like Jesus. We want them to become more godly as they learn about God. And we know this is something you've been thinking about for a while as well. Do you have some advice for us as um, seminary people or pastors and church leaders or even just advice for regular Christians about their spiritual formation or about discipling others for spiritual growth? Let me first affirm the concern. It is a concern of mine, too. Uh, Helmut Thielicke wrote a little book called A Little Exercise for Young Theologians, and I think he's on target when he talks about the danger of studying theology and mastering the concepts, but not having an experience of the subject matter of theology. That's a pyrrhic victory. It's uh, empty knowledge. I'm also concerned about the influence of contemporary culture on the habits, attitudes, and sensitivities of young adults. Uh, so speaking of spiritual formation, I strongly believe that the surrounding prevailing culture is a powerful means of spiritual formation. That is, it's already happening. And so our, we have to be aware of this as seminaries so that we can make sure that we call it out, name it for what it is, and then influence people's minds and hearts so that the gospel will take them captive and not some other story that promises success and fulfillment. Um, so spiritual formation should be trying to respond to Paul's exhortation to set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. And that doesn't mean that spirituality is otherworldliness, as if people don't know how to change a light bulb. But uh, I think it does mean becoming more like Christ where we are in our particular context, here on earth, now. What does that look like, to live like Christ now? That's also part of spiritual formation. Uh, so to answer your question, I suggest a two-pronged approach. First, I do think it helps to tell students to uh, open their eyes to the fact that they are already being spiritually formed. We have to know our culture <laughs> and what is forming us. But then second, we have to counter it. And one way to do that is to participate in chapel and formation times where people are living out together in bodily ways the story of the gospel. Because we're always living out somebody's story. We need to live out together the story of the gospel. I'm a great believer in taking every imagination captive to the gospel. 
So I, I think Charles Taylor is on to something when he talks about the secular imaginary, which it's not part of the official curriculum, but it really has a, a powerful way of shaping individual and social lives. So we need to make sure people don't simply read about the story of Scripture. We need to make sure they take an active part and that they're continuing it. For a number of different reasons, many seminaries are shifting their delivery so that online education has become a big part of theological training. So what are your thoughts on this? Get thee behind me. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I'm not, um, not anti-innovation uh, or technology. Uh, I benefit from having access to sources that I wouldn't otherwise have access to. And I understand why online education is so popular these days. Uh, it reflects so many things our contemporary culture values, convenience and affordability. Um, it also caters to individualism. With online courses, you can take a course whenever you want, how often you want. So that's why I think it's very popular. But uh, I don't myself think that popularity is necessarily an index for quality or excellence. And I do have some concerns. I recognize that if you simply look at numbers, online education appears to be wildly successful. But as a pedagogue, a teacher, I have to ask, what are people learning? <laughs> what, what, are, what kind of learning is taking place? Are people learning simply information? Can you teach wisdom via online uh, courses. It's a real question I have. Um, and my cup, because my own view is that the goal of a theological education is not simply amassing information and acquiring knowledge, but becoming a wise person. And information is impersonal. I mean, you really don't need to be around other people to get information, but I think wisdom is personal. I think it's the kind of thing you only learn from other people and uh, often in the context of community. So I'm hard-pressed to think of a, an adequate substitute for embodied communal learning. Kevin, I know that you have been involved in the Center for Pastor Theologians for quite a long time now, as have I. And Kristen and I were reminded as we were preparing for this podcast about a piece you wrote for the Gospel Coalition a while back that was adapted from the book you've written called The Pastor as Public Theologian, in which you said that pastors, pastor theologians, should be reading more fiction. We find that intriguing. We agree completely, but we'd love to hear you say more about that. Why is it important that pastors read fiction and what kinds of advice do you have for pastors in this respect? Yes, well, a pastor, I believe, is a theologian who works with people. Uh, so you have to understand the Bible, yes, and that's what we help people do in seminaries. But you also have to learn about people, the people to whom you're ministering. People are often very different from the pastors that, that uh, minister to them. Uh, sometimes pastors are sent to places of which they have no experience, a city person going to the country, a country person going to the city. Understanding other people is hard. <laughs> but I think fiction helps us to learn how to understand those who are different from us. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a quote where he says, In reading great literature, I become a thousand men, 
and yet remain myself. And he's talking about all the vicarious experiences he's had through learning fiction. And I think this would also apply not simply to learning about different individuals, but learning about different cultures. When I am invited to speak at a particular place, I try to read some fiction that will give me an insight into the spirit or culture or the people of that place. I learned this, by the way, before I got married, because my wife, who is French, uh, was a little apprehensive about what would happen when I first met her parents. And so she suggested to me that I read some books by a French author named Marcel Pagnol, which he does a, a brilliant job of getting to the heart of villagers in this part of France where my uh, wife's parents lived. So I did. I read these books. And so when I met her parents, I felt like I knew them already uh, because this author was so accurate in getting me into their quirks, their habits, their habitual ways of responding, their way of thinking. And consequently, I think I was able to get on much better with them, and uh, I was able to marry their daughter. So that was a success. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. So uh, I do try to read a few books of any place I go to. And that may be, I mean, I think sometimes this may be one way of following Paul's example when he says, I become all things to all people. Like Lewis, he's become a thousand people to try to understand a few in order to minister effectively to them. Uh, listeners who want to go deeper than this, who want concrete suggestions, uh, would be advised to look at Cornelius Plantinga's book, Reading for Preaching. Uh, he has some additional reasons for why pastors should read fiction. He says you should read poetry to tune your ear to the language, the language of, which, of course, is the main tool for those who minister the word. He thinks reading biography is good for acquiring good judgment and learning about human character. But above all, reading fiction gives insight into the human condition. And uh, just one example I can give from experience, I read a book by Jeffrey Eugenides called Middlesex. And I wasn't quite sure what it was about. I thought it might be about jolly old England and village life. No, halfway through, the narrator changes sex, changes gender. And it was almost as though having lived that life, I was going through a gender change. I had, so that's the title, Middle Sex. And it was a very powerful way of helping me understand just a bit more of what it's like to be someone who's confused about gender. That's just one example, but there are many. While we're on the topic of books, uh, for those who are listening who have not had theological training but are interested in Christian theology, uh, besides yours, which books would you recommend that they read uh, to help them grow as believers and in, in their uh, wanting to go deeper into theology. And then secondly, uh, you are a very productive author, and there may be those who want to read some of your books. And so which book or books would you recommend that uh, they begin with of yours? Okay, well, to start with the, um, the general authors, for people who want to get into theology more, I, um, I'm always bad at questions like this because there's so many. <laughs> but if I had to pick one, my pick for today is going to be Oliver O'Donovan's Begotten or Made. 
Oliver O'Donovan is an English ethical theologian, and the title, Begotten or Made, is taken from the Apostles' Creed. Uh, it was a reference to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God eternal. But, and that's, that's good old Trinitarian theology, and the book has a very good explanation of that. But what he does in the book is relate that question about the doctrine of the Trinity to a very contemporary question concerning uh, sexual ethics and reproductive ethics and bioethics. In other words, his question in the book is, should we think in terms of making children, say through in vitro fertilization or other techniques? And the way he brings to bear an ancient doctrine like the Trinity on a very contemporary and live issue for us here in the West today, I thought was just brilliant. It's theology at its best, bringing scripture and doctrine to bear on contemporary problems in a very helpful way. That'll, that should get you excited about theology. Um, I've also recommend the classics. It's hard to think of someone doing better than reading Calvin's Institutes or one of Luther's essays. Um, bondage of the will even, to try to understand uh, how one can go deeper in seeking to understand the Word of God and how it fits uh, everything together. And then um, a user-friendly suggestion from another force, former student and friend of your dean, uh, Dan Trier has uh, just come out with a book called Evangelical Theology and Introduction, which I think is very fair-minded and he makes sure to be hospitable to all the great Protestant traditions, and so I would, I would recommend that. As far as, far as my own books go, um, I can recommend two that are safe for beginners. Uh, one would be Faith Speaking Understanding, where I talk about the Christian life in terms of an actor living into the story of Jesus, and theology is necessary to understand that story better and our identity. And then a book called Hearers and Doers, which is about the importance of becoming a disciple, a, a doer, and not simply a hearer. Dr. Van Hooser, as we mentioned at the top of the show, you are here this week mainly because you agreed to give the installation address at the service at which I was installed as the second dean of Beeson earlier today. We want to get a recording of that address up on our website so people can listen to it for themselves. But for now, would you mind telling our listeners just very briefly what it was that you said in that message today? Yes, it picks up on some of the themes we've already talked about. Uh, I should say my text was Philippians 1, verse 27 through chapter 2, verse 3, where Paul is exhorting his readers, whom he loves at Philippi, to live lives worthy of the gospel. And my message explored how that applied to academics who are citizens of the academy, you might say, as well as citizens of the gospel. And I think Paul unpacks what it means to live in a manner worthy of the gospel in chapter 2, where he, uh, where he encourages the Philippians to be of the same mind and to do nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility to count others as more significant than themselves. And I think that translates powerfully into the lives of seminary professors who may be too tempted to think uh, too much of their own discipline, their own way of doing their discipline, their denominational differences, and, and so on. So I was encouraging my listeners to think that a wisdom worthy of the gospel requires 
all the disciplines and all the denominations working in tandem so that together we hear what God is saying to us in his word. And my hope and prayer for students at Beeson is that they will get understanding, that they'll give understanding to others by going the second mile, trying to make sure they understand them, and that they will become understanding, that is, the kind of people who will be able to mature in Christ. Uh, last question. Uh, you have known Dean Sweeney for many years and have seen God's work in his life. It's already been said that you two are dear friends. So how do you think God will bless us through him as our dean? And what do you think Dean Sweeney will seek to inculcate in the Beeson community? Well, I'm thrilled for Beeson that Dean Sweeney is here. He's one of my favorite scholar saints, my favorite church historian, so I'll return that compliment. Uh, he combines immense learning with an immense love for the church. Uh, one of our mutual friends, Dan Trier, when I told him I was coming to speak at the installation, wrote this. Uh, he said, when I think of Doug Sweeney, Philippians 4 comes to mind. He's a historian and a theologian who focuses his mind on excellent things and lives accordingly. And at the same time, his gentleness is evident to all. So I think you're going to see that. I think you're going to see him work tirelessly here at Beeson, not to make his own name great, but to make sure that Beeson is the best it can be, and that it's the kind of community where students can learn Christ and mature as disciples. Um, he knows how to work with other people. I've seen him in administrative roles myself. Uh, even when he is dealing with people who don't come from the same confessional tradition, uh, after all, he was, for years, an edifying presence on Trinity's campus, despite being, for most of the time, the sole Lutheran. That's not easy. And in the farewell speech I gave to him at Trinity, I thanked him not only for all the times he had saved me from making hasty generalizations about church history, but for his Christ-like presence. And for the life of me, I could not conjure up any unpleasant memories. I think your dean embodies Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be gracious. So my hope and prayer and conviction is that he will be for Beeson an example of intellectual virtue and godly ambition that everybody can imitate. Well, it is a little bit difficult and embarrassing to follow that up with the conclusion to this broadcast, but uh, please pray for me, listeners, that I can live up to uh, at least part of that description. Please pray for Beeson Divinity School as we move into this next season of our uh, seminary life. Uh, pre please continue to pray for Dr. George and Denise as they finish this sabbatical year and then join us again next year. Thank you very much for joining us. You have been listening to one of my best friends in the whole world, Dr. Kevin Van Hooser. It's a great honor for me that he was here today speaking at my installation service. He is research professor of theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Uh, I commend his work to you wholeheartedly, and I thank you for joining us. Goodbye for now. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. 
Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at beesondivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes.